Hello and welcome to The Rating Room. My name is Jay. And I'm Andy. Here on The Rating Room we're going to be talking movies and TV shows. This is our first season. We're going to be focusing on the James Bond franchise. So sit back, relax and enjoy the show. is episode one doctor no james bond uh, sent to jamaica investigating the death of a british agent his investigation leads to doctor no's island bond finds out that doctor no is planning to disrupt the american space launch that's the film in a nutshell uh, what do you remember about it before you rewatched it recently i remember the honey rider obviously massive moment for any man young boy i also remember that there was something on the island some kind of tank I couldn't remember exactly what it was, but I just I know it was kind of a vocal point on the island. But I also remember Doctor No's metal hands as well. How about you? What did you remember? I mean, Honey Rider, absolute yeah. iconic scene. I, I don't remember the island, or I didn't remember the island, and I'm a bit fuzzy about some of the, the details, particularly as we go later on into the franchise, like which scenes were from which movie. But I remember Car Chase after he's picked up at the airport, and... I remember just the absurdity of him driving down the road and then pulling behind a bush and all of a sudden he can't be seen anymore. Just ridiculously simple, but also ridiculous. Um, And I also remember the tarantula because that was a bit freaky. Yeah, that's that's about all I remembered going in. It's been a few years since I watched it. Yeah, I think it's probably been a good 10 years since I watched it. But there was things, I don't know if you found it as well, where you was watching it and then something happened and you thought oh yeah that that means this bit and it's like what you said about you know because it's been like so many films they do become a bit blurry about which bits are in which film yeah it becomes almost like i remember this from a sean connery bond and i remember this from a roger moore bond not that they all merge into one but specific scenes are not necessarily that memorable in in all the films because the 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 honey rider bit they replicated that didn't they in a, a later film or, you know, in terms of, was it Ali Berry? Ali Berry had a very similar bikini style, I seem to remember. So that would have been, I'm thinking, Die Another Day. But then also, I guess, in some ways, they replicated it with the first Daniel Craig film, with Craig taking the, oh, the yeah. Honey Rider role yeah. in, in that. Yeah, good point. So what we're going to do now is we're going to look at, obviously, talking about Doctor No. So obviously, in this film, the main villain is Doctor No. There are three Bond girls. So we've got Honey Rider, Sylvia Trench, and Miss Tarot. The theme song, actually, is the John Barry one. So we didn't really have, like, the iconic James Bond theme song, did we, on this one? No, I remember when I watched it, I was expecting a scene, like an opening, yeah. and then going into the the credits or, you know, the, the, the Bond song. But it, it didn't happen in this film. It was straight into the into the theme and the song, which surprised me from, from what I remember, because it may be... I don't know this to be true, but it may be the only Bond film where that actually happens. And it's the same with the credits, because obviously when you think about James Bond, you, you think of the theme song, 
Bond girls. And then the opening credits are usually memorable. But when this one started, it was just like all your flashing lights. There were like little circles, squares, all kind of jumping on the screen. It was only later on during the the, the intro, you know, the credits that you had kind of had the silhouettes of the women. Because usually you think of like a James Bond intro and you think about like the women and silhouettes and um, it's very sexy, isn't it? Whereas this, it was very different. Obviously, it's the first James Bond. So that was that was going to come later on. But the, the thing I did like was it then transitioned into the the free blind mice song and the, the old men walking in didn't it straight into the film like you said yeah that, that was a nice transition i like the way it kind of seamlessly went from that to that scene and as i was watching that i thought i don't remember this at all like the when the song kicked in for the three i'm thinking this doesn't make any sense but then as soon as i saw the three men walking i'm like it, it kind of clicked like i remember it is now one of those iconic scenes that have just gone from my memory but the part when I saw it, it's like, of course, yeah, I remember this. Should we get into some some fun facts about the film? Yeah, go for it. So the body count, you know, James Bond kills everyone, doesn't he? Well, you, you'd think so, wouldn't you? Yeah. Four. I, I was count surprised. Of four bodies. A little bit tame, I thought. He's he's not, you know, killing swathes of people in, in this movie. And that's what I liked, I think. You know, when you think about, like, especially modern films now, like the action hero, he just kills loads, or she kills loads of people. Whereas this one... It definitely felt more like a traditional spy film instead of like an action film. It was. It definitely felt like a espionage spy kind of movie. So it wasn't heavy on the killing. So yeah, when he killed four people, I'm thinking, oh no, that's that's quite low when you think about some of the other movies. Yeah, it was uh, probably more story heavy than some of the later Bond films. Obviously, everyone, every of them have a story throughout, but I think sometimes they could give way to to scenes or moments as opposed to following the thread of the story. So that, that probably explains that. Another thing that is synonymous with James Bond is gadgets, gadgets galore. This time around, a Geiger counter, which is not a massively revolutionary gadget by any stretch of the imagination. In 1962, probably not either, to be honest. It's, you know, it, it wasn't something that jumped out of the screen at me as like, wow, this is so futuristic amazing tech but that that was the gadget of the film so I, I guess maybe at this point they'd not established the gadgets as being a, integral to the story you know it could uh, i'm not entirely sure how that follows on from, from say the books you know whether the books are gadget heavy as as the movies yeah and obviously we were talking about other films um later on in the in the podcast you know when we go by week by week but there did come a point in the james bond films where they were just too heavily driven by the gadgets so it's a nice surprise that there was the Geiger counter, which, like you said, isn't really, doesn't feel like a gadget, but it's, you know, that's what he was given. Yeah, it feels it feels more like it was a piece of equipment necessary for the job in hand, <laughs> which, when you put it like that, makes it sound really dull. So let, let's stick to gadget as the uh, as the word of choice going forward. Let's not undersell these. Okay, one more thing to, to point out, the, the introduction, you know, wherever he enters the room he introduces himself as bond james bond and within sort of seven and a half minutes of the film that's exactly what he did at the poker table i believe it was i'm just going to skip ahead in the, in our notes that uh, spoiler alert for anyone out there we do have notes on screen i found it quite interesting that he wasn't the first one to use that kind of introduction he said that he introduced himself as bond james bond but it was only after sylvia trench introduced herself as trench sylvia trench so 
is that a coincidence or was he just simply mimicking her introduction and then it stuck as a tagline throughout the rest of the franchise? I don't know, but I thought that was quite an interesting... I've got an interesting fact next. about that. So this wasn't, I don't think this was scripted, so I'm kind of going off point here, but apparently he ad-libbed that in the, in the script. Apparently he just says, I am James Bond, but Sean Connery thought that sounded too boring. So he might have talked like, you know, what you just said there about Sylvia Trench, just took her kind of lead on that. But apparently, yeah, he wasn't happy with the script in terms of he thought it was a bit boring, but obviously it stuck. And interestingly as well, he doesn't say that in every film, which I found surprising. Okay, where do we where do we want to go with this now? Should we get into the the crux of the film itself? Let's start with I mean we we briefly touched on this earlier. Your favourite scene? I mean, it's got to be Honey Rider, hasn't it? Yeah, got to be, got to be. Um, I think a close second was probably the car chase, but Honey Rider. Rewatching it, you know, as soon as it happens, it's just like, oh yeah. You know, that's what I remembered. It didn't disappoint watching it for the bat. I don't know how many times I've watched this film, a lot of times. But yeah, it's just, like you said, it, it's just iconic, really. I think it's one of those scenes that even if you're not a fan of the James Bond franchise, you know the scene, you you know exactly what happened in, in that moment of the film, whether you've seen it or not, because it's been replayed countless times on documentaries and talking head shows and best ofs all that kind of stuff it's yeah it's it's almost pop culture at this point um so what we're going to do as well in this podcast is is look at how many times you reach for your phone because sometimes you watch a film and you kind of get a bit bored and you reach for your phone and you start like doing a bit on social media so andy how many times did you reach for your phone during dr no i didn't not once um partly because I, i wanted to concentrate to memorize you know with this in mind but i was i just found myself engrossed in the story and trying to follow it along as well so no no phone phone usage for me how about yourself yeah the same i don't know like you said i was conscious in terms of like you know making some notes as well there was a bit later on which we'll cover in terms of honey rider where you know i paused the film reached for my phone so i'm not counting that But um, no. I won't ask why that was. It's not that kind of podcast. <laughs> but yeah, it was. Um, it was um, in, an enjoyable film, and I, I wasn't getting bored at all. It was um, really good, and I was surprised when we talk about this in a minute. When we looked at the runtime, it, it didn't feel that long. It felt like a normal length movie. I, I, if I didn't know the runtime from your notes, I would have assumed maybe ninety minutes because it just flew by. Okay, then big question. Rating out of 10, what did you give this? I went with a six, which sounds stingy. I'd say it was a, it was a solid, if unspectacular, film. There was nothing particularly wrong with it, but certainly not one of the better ones from, from memory. It did surprise me when you said that, you know, because I, I gave it a seven. I thought it was a solid film. I was mindful of going too high, though. I didn't want to set the bar too high with the first film and then not give myself much room in terms of there are any better films out there. I agree in terms of it was definitely story-driven, which I, I like, to be honest, because some of the later James Bond films, I think, is too much action and doesn't necessarily kind of move the plot forward, whereas this, I felt it was a genuine spy movie. It didn't feel like an action movie. And it was, like I said, it, it didn't feel like what the one time was like you said if it, it did feel like a 90 minute film so we're both married so one of the things we're going to do is get our wives to kind of comment and watch the film together well 
one of our wives will be doing that for the James Bond ones. Yeah, you will notice a theme with my answers as the weeks go on. So uh, my wife's third, it was the length of the movie was good, which kind of relates to what we just said. But one of the things I just want to point out was that we did actually watch the film in two sittings. The first time when we watched the first half, I was just really knackered. So we, we stopped it um, halfway through and then the next night we watched it again. So that might have contributed to it feeling like a 90 minute film. But one of the other things she said was um, that the fight scene with Dr. Nay was short and sweet. So, you know, a lot of films have really drawn out big fights between, you know, the main guy, the, the main villain, and it can go on and on. And you, you watch some films and they just go on too long. Whereas this film, it was really good, you know, in terms of you introduce the doctor now, you know, there's obviously some bits we're going to talk about in a, in a few minutes. And then they have a fight and then it's all over. It's not like elaborate. They're not pulling out any kind of gadgets. You're not getting loads of different henchmen coming in. It's just like one-on-one, really kind of concise battle. And it's interesting because when the missus said that, I, I thought exactly the same. That's why I actually made some notes down saying the same thing. So we're both kind of singing from the same hymn sheet. How about you, Andy? The same. I think not just Bond films, but I think films in general, when you've got the main antagonist, the main protagonist, there's that struggle at the end. You know, if it ends in a physical fight scene, they're generally quite drawn out and someone's just about to, you know, die. You think, is it all over? And then it'll make a comeback and then the tides turn and, and you kind of go on this almost story within a story because the fight takes so long. Uh, my wife verdict, she doesn't watch them. Like I tried her with Casino Royale because I said, you know, this is a good starting point. She didn't really like it, and she's got it in her mind that she doesn't like Bond films. Expect that answer for the next 25 weeks. <laughs> One thing I did think of is um, this is a bit of a tricky thing, doing a wife edit. So if we're doing our podcast in the same podcast in two years about other films, we could potentially be wifeless or have a different <laughs> wife. So we might have to add some kind of like bit at the end saying this was recorded with wife number one. And then, like, or wife number two, or this is afterwards when we are both divorced. Is, is there a podcast equivalent of the channel Dave, you know, where it's just reruns? Because that, that's <laughs> it may be, like you said, a very different picture back then. And maybe, you know, our wives get sick of us doing these podcasts after a while. So it's just the two of us talking to each other on a screen every week. It's <laughs> the only company that we have. Yeah, true. Right. Let's get into some some of the talking points so one hour 51 was the runtime not not the 90 minutes we kind of guessed at a decent length film but flew by i thought coming up to 60 years old 1962 director of course terence young would direct three bond films in total including this one goes on to do the next one which is from russia with love and also the fourth one thunderball so we we mentioned straight into the title sequence there's no action scene it's just bond song or the bond films one thing as well to note that i that was quite interesting. Q is a staple of the Bond films. There's no mention of Q in this film. He's in there. Major Buthroyd is his given name in this particular film, but there's no mention of him being called Q. So that was quite a an interesting tidbit, I thought. Definitely, I was um, surprised with that as well. I, you know, doing the research um, that we did, I've read a couple of James Bond books, but both the James Bond books that I've read were not based on films. And I can't recall whether Q was in um, those ones or not. So, yeah, that, that's an interesting point. Shall we talk about the film itself? So you mentioned the opening scene. Do you want to elaborate on that? Interesting intro. Really good. Like what we said earlier. But one of the things I did think of was the the, the three blind men 
it was just so, such a long, overly long assassination. I mean, if it was me, I'd just be looking at getting a taxi to the place instead of going through, you know, like where to get near the docks and it is like walking all the way through Jamaica just to get to the location to assassinate um, Strange Ways. I just thought that was really, it tied in lovely in terms of the intro scene, but it just felt like really overly long. What about you? What did you think of that? I did wonder exactly where it was going to go. Because as soon as I saw the three blind mice or the three blind men, in the film, I thought, oh yeah, the, this is the killing. And then it's like, or is it the killing? I was almost questioning myself because it wasn't happening for a long time. And yeah, it, it killed a bit of time, but probably too much. I mean, if they wanted to do a wall, they wanted to get, you know, a bit of cardio in there. Did they need to pretend to be blind when they're walking through Jamaica? Surely they could have just like wall. And then as they got near, you know, Stranger Ways place, then bang on some glasses to pretend to be blind. Yeah, you, you stick your disguise on around the corner. Yeah, yeah. Another thing as well, and it, I think it's common in a lot of the older films, is the colour of blood that they use. Uh, I don't know if you picked up on this, Andy. It, it was, I mean, obviously in films they use fake blood, of course. This just reminded me that I'm watching a film and this is fake blood. It's kind of, you know, take you out of the moment, kind of bright. And like you mentioned earlier, James Bond is introduced after seven minutes and he's actually seen playing um, back and back, which was funny because... I knew that he originally played that from, I think just originally watching the films and just kind of reading and knowing about James Bond. I knew that's what originally he was playing, but the misses straight away were going like, that's not how you play poker. And I said like, no, no, it's not poker. And you know, the bit, I think that it was like called the shoe where he was having it and she, she was going like, but the, the dealer has that. Why, why has James Bond got that? And I said, no, no, it's not poker. But then I'm sure... I don't know what point it happens. He transitions, doesn't he, to a, a different card game. I think it is poker, isn't it, actually? I think so, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have known it was Baccarat that he was playing. Not, I'm not a card aficionado, not aficionado, easy for me to say. So I guess the assumption is you see a table like that with people sat around it, you assume, you assume they're playing poker. But it's a, it's a good spot on your part. Speaking of poker, that's where we hear the first instance of Bond, James Bond, um, once he introduced himself to Sylvia Trench, of course. We move on where he goes back to the, the office and we see Miss Moneypenny for the first time. A scene that probably repeats itself in many of the films. He enters the office, throws his hat on the hat stand, and they have a little bit of a flirt. That seems to be the order of the day in the James Bond films. Definitely wouldn't fly these days. I did no. think it was a little bit inappropriate, but different times, different attitudes, so we can't really yeah. be too judgy. Let's let's not cancel James Bond for, for a bit of harmless flirting in the opening 20 minutes of the film. I think when you watch any kind of old film, I know when I say to my kids, not about James Bond, just any kind of film that has really um, old kind of special effects, you have to kind of put look at it through a different kind of lens. You know, we were looking at it, what do you say? Um, 62, isn't it? So you're a good 60 years on. It's, yeah, like you said, it definitely won't get past the Me Too yes, movement. Changing times, it? changing attitudes. Yeah, and um, I don't know if we're going to keep track of this, but the, the throwing of the hat is obviously something we think about. And I just wonder if it's going to be one of those things that he, he does in every film. Maybe it's something we can add to our list. I feel like it can't be the only time that happened. It has to have happened multiple times. It, it oh, feels yeah, like there's a lot of yeah. the films where he enters the office, he throws the hat, he has a bit of a flirt, and then he's called in to see him. That just seems yeah. to be a standard template of, of a Bond film. I think the thing kind of going off script a little bit here the thing that i don't really remember much of is him wearing a hat 
in in any of the films really he's, he's obviously got one and we we see him wearing it very briefly but I, I don't feel like james bond is a hat guy yeah we're just gonna have to kind of track that to see when it starts because thinking we're not going to talk about you know future movies too much but just off the top of my head i can't really recall roger moore wearing a hat and obviously you know he's he's two james bonds in so yeah it'd be interesting to see if it's only sean connery films that has the hat in there i have made a note is jb a hat man so Miss Moneypenny, obviously an iconic character of the Bond franchise. Another one that recurs in quite a few of the James Bond films is Felix Leiter. Nine films, I believe, is the total. So this is the first time we see him. And I've not taken the notes on this, so correct me if I'm wrong, but is he a CIA operative? Certainly a, an ally of yeah. MI5 or 6. We, yes. We'll edit that bit yeah. out if I've got it. Yeah, whichever one it is, edit it so I sound correct. It's MI5 <laughs> or MI6. Yeah, and it's interesting that he is played by multiple actors as well. Obviously, like James Bond, but he is played, like you said, nine films. Even up to modern day, he's in there, isn't he? So it's, he's a, definitely, a, obviously, an important recurring character. And I was a bit surprised, if I'm honest, because I, I didn't remember Felix in this film, having not watched it for 10 years that he's obviously introduced in the very first film and he's still in the very latest film, but he only appears nine times. So obviously, you know, he's not even in half the films, but he's a character that I remember being in the James Bond films. You know, talking about Bond, he's obviously known to be very cool, but he's like, you know, when, when he lands in Jamaica and he, he's in the airport and the airport driver, you know, comes up and said, oh, I was sent by the hotel. And then James Bond, like, makes a phone call and say, like, you know, have you sent a driver? No, 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 I'm not sent a driver. But he still gets in the car and just, like, plays along with it. Obviously, he's keeping an eye on the driver, but that just shows you how confident and cool James Bond is. He's not, he's not like, on the way, you know, phoning up, you know, strange ways to say, um, not strange ways, obviously, he's dead. Uh, but phoning up, you know, colleagues, you know, from his agency to, to come and help him out straight away at the airport. Yeah, there's no call for backup. He recognises he's in danger, shows no sign of it, but then just goes with the flow. Speaking of the cab driver, as they go down towards the hotel, I guess those is the first port of call. They get into the fight scene once you know once he's hidden, you know he's being followed, hides behind the bush, disappears from view, and then he gets into a fight with the cab driver. I noticed a continuity error here, and it's something. It's another one that I, I remember it, but I didn't realise it was this film. But there's a he's rearing back with a right hand. And then the camera cuts just as he hits him with the left. But it's very, very obvious that he hits him with the wrong hand. So straight away, it's kind of like, oh, continuity error. Didn't pick that up at all. Um, so that was a good spot, Andy, on that one. One of the things when watching this again, and I said to like the missus about this, and she just thinks I'm sad, where Bond puts a strand of hair on the wardrobe, you know, when he, he goes out of his hotel room. Now, you know, this is a bit of a sad thing to admit. But as a kid, and I don't... I'm sure it's after watching this, but I used to do that as a kid in my bedroom when I, you know, as a kid living with my parents. I had a brother. I've got two brothers now, but just had the one brother then. But yeah, used to be like, you know, thinking I was a spy. I used to put like, you know, bits of hair on like wardrobes, drawers, anything that I thought someone might go in to like tamper with. So then like, when I come back like hours later, I would like check those straight away to see if anyone's been tampering in my bedroom. Like, I don't know who would be tampering in my bedroom. I don't have anything really to nick. But yeah, I thought that was, uh, that, that made me chuckle when I saw Bond do that. It's quite a clever thing, because, I mean, I guess, you know, back in the 60s, you can't have the 
motion detectors or the laser across the floor, which I guess the modern action films would have. It's such a simple thing. And yet it is, it is a, it's a definite spy move. You know, it's not something other than yourself as a child would, you know, it's not something a normal person would do in everyday life. It's definitely one of those, those old school spy moves. Well, maybe if there's any intelligence agencies listening to our podcast, Andy, I could get recruited because obviously I could, you know, doing these kind of things from a young age, what can I say? I think what's interesting, he goes down for a drink later in the hotel and the bartender says, mix like you said, sir, not stirred, which is kind of, I guess, the early version of shaken, not stirred. But I wonder if shaken, not stirred was, had not been thought of at that point or whether it was just kind of an evolution of that. But again, it's one of those lines that I expect to hear in every Bond. Before I watch this, I made a note, you know, to say, to record when he actually said that. And it's 23 minutes. But like you just said, it wasn't exactly, you know, the shaken, not stirred um, that we're so used to. So, yeah, be interesting to see actually what film he actually uses that phase, you know, the the um, mix, like you said, so not stirred compared to shaken, not stirred. Talking about drinking, one thing I did pick out, and I don't know if you did, Andy, was when he goes to the bar and... He goes to the back of the bar with Quarrel and he kicks him and there's a load of boxes behind him, which, you know, like bottle boxes, but they, they don't make any noise. There's no glass smashing or anything. He just kind of falls into it. So it's like all empty. But it's like, why would you have all those empty boxes behind it? So it looked like it was just like a deliberate prop just to kind of, cap, you know, catch the, you know, the stump man. Yeah, I, I thought the same. Uh, I wonder whether it's a budget thing. You know, they can't afford all the stunt glass or whether it is just, you know, something for safety reasons. But yeah, it looked very out of place. As soon as he landed and there was no noise of any sort of thud other than just the light cardboard scratches that he maybe got, it's kind of like, oh yeah, <laughs> empty boxes. Well, paper cuts. I don't know if you can get a paper cut from a cardboard box, but obviously that's very severe. Another thing, I, I hate spiders, as you might know, Andy. And it's a obviously... They try to kill James Bond with a spider, which just seems a really elaborate and assassination attempt to kill Bond. What, what did you think about that when you saw that? Unnecessary, I would say. I, I guess the only way you could justify it is if you want to make it seem like an accident, but it's a very specific accident that you're trying to achieve here. So, yeah, I, I thought, again, it's one of those iconic scenes that I remembered, but thinking back in the context of the story doesn't actually add much to the film and doesn't make that much sense uh one, one thing about the tarantula uh, i think you called this out is that you could see the protective glass that the spider was walking on when you got a close-up of james bond i guess it's the best way to shoot it obviously don't actually want a live spider crawling on your lead actor they, they went a bit too far with that protection and made it obvious on screen yeah, I think the way, you know, where he's laying and he's laying on his side and the, the spider's crawling up because of where the camera is, you can obviously see James Bond's face. And that's where it's noticeable in terms of where the glass is, whereas where they do um, additional close up shots, they reshoot it with a stunt man, but they do it from an angle where you can't see his face. So you can, it, the spider's actually on the person, whereas obviously where they're doing it, where you can see Connery's face. You can see the glass straight away, like, uh, me and Mrs. were like, oh, that's really obvious. <laughs> you know, it was, like, really obvious. Yeah. It, it, it does take you out of the moment a little bit, but I guess, you know, sign of the times. You have to make, make do with what you can find in 1962. One question I did have, 
is a shoe heavy enough to kill a tarantula? Like, if, you're, if you've got a house spider, it's going to be, you know, what, the size of a, a small coin. Shoe's going to do the trick. But this is a massive tarantula with, you know, a pretty beefed up body. You know, if, if spiders had gyms, tarantulas are the ones that are the meatheads. I'm not sure a shoe is enough. I mean, you did obviously hit it multiple times, but it, I, I don't know. It's one of those open-ended questions that maybe I'll never know the answer to, and I hope I never have to find out with my own shoes. Yes, I, yeah, like you said, I don't want to really try to find out if that's true or not. Another thing we kind of picked up on was that where James Bond is in Miss Tavo's house and the professor comes and it's not like he's, he doesn't interrogate him really. He didn't try to like torture him to get information out. They're having a little conversation and then Bond just shoots him and that's it. He like He's not even got any information out of him or anything. He just goes, the professor just goes for, you know, tries to get the gun and that's it. Bond just shoots him straight away. It just seemed really quick and he's like, a bit pointless. It's, it seems like James Bond was on like day one of being, you know, being a spy and not really thinking about interrogating or not even like holding him captive um, knock him out and wait for like some backup to like you know try to get the information out what did you think about that it, it's almost like he had somewhere to be and he needed to get it done quickly so because he didn't really make any real attempts to extract that information you know no drawn out torture or repeated questioning or slapping him about a bit first it was kind of like oh you've not got information you're dead off we go sort of thing <laughs> like I've, you know my taxi's still waiting for me the meter's running I've got to get out of here. That kind of quickness. It just it's like he almost couldn't be asked. Yes. Yeah. It's like doing a speed run on a game or something where you gotta get from the beginning to the end in the quickest amount of time. And that's what James Bond was doing on this mission. Let's move on a bit further. So so later on as we go in the film, there's a, a car chase scene down the cliff. I don't rem- so the car chase scene I remembered was the, the earlier one with the, the cab driver. This this was uh, later on in the movie. I thought this looked really poor in terms of the special effects. Like the the old school sitting in a city uh, a still car while the screen behind you plays the the background was obviously an effect here. And then some exterior shots where you know they're obviously driving down that that cliffside. But it yeah, it just felt like a, a real reminder that we're watching a nearly sixty year old film. Another kind of observation is Honey Rider where in one scene she's got soaking wet hair and then when James Bond and Quarrel and Honey Rider run down the beach a little bit in the next scene her hair is like nearly dry but it's like really ruffled everywhere did you notice that yeah I noticed it quite a few times so obviously there's the beach scene where she's out of the water wet hair a few minutes later it's dry and it kind of it flips between wet and dry in in that scene and also later on where they're in the river, the, the the goons, you know, the the bad guys have arrived. They're hunting them down, so they go and hide in the river with the with the reeds, I guess, to act like snorkels, so they can hide underwater. Um, and it's not just honey as well. I think Bond is the same. His his hair kind of goes wet, dry, wet, dry as it goes between scenes. So yeah, that's another kind of continuity thing that I pro- probably wouldn't have noticed had I not been trying to look out for these things to take notes. But it it certainly takes you out of the moment. Yeah, definitely. I thought it was quite interesting when she first realizes that she's not alone. She pulls the knife out. Obviously, you know, there's this strange man on the island singing. She thought she was alone, and she shouts out to him, "Stay where you are!" Whilst holding the knife, uh, Bond, in in the suave manner that he has, just says, "I assure you, my intentions are strictly honourable." And she just puts the knife away, like, "Oh, okay." Like, if you if you say so, I believe you. Which I, I found baffling that she would be trusting him so quickly after you know one sentence. She now knows he's a good guy. 
Very gullible, isn't she? Naive. Absolutely. So obviously when they're on the island together, the goons arrive, so Bond's trying to keep her safe. But he's really bossy. He's really kind of dragging her around. She knows the island. He doesn't. It's his first trip there, as far as I'm aware. But he's telling her where to go and what to do. It seems borderline bullying, dare I say. Definitely. I noticed that as well. Where she's been coming to this island, you know, to get shells all this time. And then she comes to Bond, finds Bond, and he's just bossing her around. So, yeah, it was definitely evident. Uh, did you notice as well, the when the boat arrived with the, the hit squad on, the guy on the tannoy says, we've been expecting you. It's, it's one of those iconic lines of, of Blofeld, which is kind of... So I wondered whether this was foreshadowing for future films or whether it was just one of those coincidences where they've they've used that line and maybe stored it for later on. I don't know, but it, it's, it's something I noticed straight away that was like, oh, that's that's Blofeld's line. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good pickup there, yeah. You know, I said at the beginning of this podcast, we wanted to keep it light-hearted. But, and I, to be honest, I didn't remember this next point, really, until I rewatched the film. So where she revealed that um, she was raped um, after her father died. I didn't remember any of the backstory, you know, until I rewatched this. But also, you know, when the doctor knows Lair, where the soldiers take her off, and, you know, he, Dr. No makes some kind of comment to say, oh, my, my, my soldiers will, will have some fun with her or something. What do you reckon kind of happened there? A bit of a dark moment in what was a... It was, yeah. Pretty, it's a pretty light-hearted film, all, all things considered. It's not deep, deeply so uh, psychological or anything, but this felt like it was almost a little bit out of place. I mean, it does... I guess the thing it did is it made her quite vulnerable for reasons other than just she is a woman, therefore she is vulnerable. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Another thing that we picked up was when when Quarrel says something's coming, you know, where he runs to Bond and Honey, saying there's something coming. And then they go and look for it. And then, you know, by the time they get to there, it's like dusk and they find the dragon, which is obviously the tank. So you must have some really good hearing to see, you know, to hear that. And then like to spend God knows how long actually running to find the dragon. Or did, did you pick that up as well in terms of like it's excellent hearing skills? It's, it was a bit unbelievable. I mean, not only the time it takes, the fact that it went from daylight to dusk, but also the, the distance they travelled because they went back over like Swampland and back through the river and through the trees. <laughs> and also, if you heard something that many hours ago, because it would have been hours, what are the chances that it's still there waiting for you after you've heard it? <laughs> if, if you've somehow managed to hear, hear it from miles away, that it's still just there waiting. Maybe. It, the, the tank was actually near them, but it was going just slightly faster than they were running. So they were just constantly just behind it. And then they must have just stopped somewhere. And that's where they caught up. So it was just like constantly just behind and they could never kind of catch it. I think you're cl clutching at straws there. But yeah, it's going to be, if there's going to be a reasonable explanation, it would be that they're, they're on the move somewhat in parallel with the tank. But <laughs> yeah, a very, very odd you know, it may have been better to, to kind of, if Coral knew that it, it went to a certain place at a certain time, so you could say, oh, you know, it's about that time again, so we need to get out of here. But yeah, very, very out of place, that scene for me. So this, this next point is where I paused the film and I looked on my phone. So Honey Rider appears to be naked in the decontamination scene. So when she's coming out, there's a, a slight glimpse of what looks to be uh, completely naked. So it's actually Rachel picked it up because, you know, I'm not pervy. But it made me pause it 
rewind it on my Xbox that I'm using um, to watch the DVD, play it, and then pause it again, just because on the Xbox, I couldn't pause it at the precise moment. So I ended up pausing the film completely, going to YouTube to watch that scene where I could pause it better, just to get a look. And then having seen her looking completely naked, doing a bit of research, and actually it turned out to be a nude, nude colour swimsuit. So um, I must have spent about 10 minutes of the film <laughs> just paused it while I was like looking on YouTube and doing a bit of research to find out whether actually in the 60s you could show a bit of more than what you usually would in the James Bond film. <laughs> did you notice uh, that or did you just straight away just think it was a swimsuit? <laughs> I mean, I made the assumption when, when they first went into the chamber, because obviously they, they have to be completely naked to go through the contamination but it was it was at the end where they kind of went through it was almost like a conveyor belt type thing wasn't it where they start at one end they go through behind a, a blurred screen so you kind of get the illusion that they're not wearing anything underneath but then when they get to the other end the camera angle was all wrong and he, the guy's waiting there with the towel left a gap between machine and towel and you i, I spotted straight away that clearly she's got some sort of, of body colored suit of some sort on i put it down to poor camera work but I bet it's one of those scenes that has been paused and rewound many, many times. Yeah, I wonder how many hits it had on YouTube, just that scene. You wear out the heads on your, your VHS player. VHS players are, are the way old people used to watch films for those uh, younger listeners out there. I guess moving on, we've got, we're now at the at Dr. No's base. So, you know, they've been caught by the tank that was miles away. They've been de- decontaminated. So now they're in, they're in captivity. The main villain has got the protagonist's bang to rights and yet they're in pretty nice looking room they're given gowns they're given slippers so what do you want for breakfast like a spa retreat this is not a villain's lair of of any kind of torturous setting it's actually pretty nice i'm thinking you know do you want to stick around for a few more days wonder what is trip advisor ratings like because the, the, you know, James Bond and Honey Rider can't be the first guests that he's had to have, you know, like breakfast order, spa, like gown, slippers, like you said. It can't just be, he's just, he's just got a stock of stuff waiting. He's got to have uh, like numerous visitors to the island for that. Or maybe he just wants to have visitors and he's just wishing that he had some friends. So he had everything ready. Maybe, uh, have you seen the show Four in a Bed on Channel 4? No. There needs to be some sort of like movie villain version of that. So basically the, the concept is you've got four different bed and breakfasts and the owners of each go and stay at the others. And then what they do is they, as soon as they enter the room, the first thing they do is they go like in all the nooks and crannies to see if there's any dust or any hairs or anything to see how clean it really is. And then what they do is they, they pay what they think the room is worth. And at the end of the week, whoever gets closest to their actual rate wins, you know, best bread and breakfast of the week or whatever it is. So you say, you know, this is a hundred pound room, but um, you know, I found there was a hair on the bed and there was dust on the cabinet. So therefore I'm going to give you 80 pounds or you know, whatever it may be. And maybe this is his version of that. So you could have like Dr. No's lair. You could have the prison on Con Air. You could, you know, just pick out some random like movie, movie places and say, you know, w- would you like to stay here and how much would you pay? Maybe Dr. No is in competition with other members of Spectra. So they've all got like a competition in terms of, you know, when they catch James Bond or other spies, what kind of ratings they get. You know, Blowfield has a setup as well. You just don't see it in terms of the the spa treatment. Doctor knows is obviously very friendly. It's like yeah, like uh, ye old trip advisor, like you said. 
obviously it is a villain's lair then they need to escape when they finally do bond is escaping down a pipe a sewage pipe type thing you know it's, it's big enough to fit a body down there but there's a there's a point in the film where he's climbing down so he's kind of shimming down with his hands and feet on the sides of the pipe but the camera angle is looking directly at his face and it's not sean connery so there's a bit of you know bad stunt work there or bad camera again where it's like oh this is just his stunt double shimmying down a pipe that's it i hate that when you know when you're watching films and you can just tell it's a stunt man or a stunt woman it's just sometimes it's just really obvious you never normally see them that close up on the face it's normally like a, a side view or you know the hair color is slightly different from the back or you know there's something that's probably a bit more subtle but this was here's a guy shimmying down a pipe that's supposed to be james bond but it's clearly not um, and so at this point, Honey and Bond have been separated and Honey, you know, they, they provided them with a nice outfit to go to dinner in and then Honey was taken away to be tortured or whatever it was that she did. But so, so she's chained up when Bond finds her, but she's not got her trousers on anymore. She's wearing a nice, a nice top and some pink trousers when she was taken away. And then they've just taken her trousers off while she's chained up to the floor as the water rises. Well, they probably just have to wash them again, you know, for the next guest. That's what they're thinking. Maybe they they only have one pair of slippers and dressing gowns and clothes, spare clothes. And they're just thinking, you know, Dr. Knows just thinking longer term. Maybe that's what's happened. Maybe. it's. Uh, I guess there's a number of ways of looking at it. That's, that's certainly one way. Uh, if you go a more sinister way, she was at least wearing some sort of shorts or pants. And I, I do wonder whether this is just one of those continuity errors where they've just forgot she was wearing trousers for that scene um, or whether it was it was a genuine form of torture by Dr. Nose Henchman that, yeah, the first thing we're going to do is we take your trousers off because when you take your trousers off, you will give us the answer. One thing I did notice, actually, was Sean Connery was um, 31 when he filmed this. I think he looks a lot older. What did you think? He looked older than 31. I, I thought he looked older than we look now, and I look pretty old at 37. I, know, yeah. I was, I was going to say that, but then I, I could see myself on camera, and I thought, better not. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong, he's certainly in, in better shape and better looking than I could ever be at any age, but at 31, he certainly didn't, didn't look his age at that point. Uh, and this is obviously the first film. But straight away, Spectra is introduced, isn't it? And obviously, that is a, it's not in every film, but it, it does, re, you know, recur, doesn't it? The, the sinister organisation. Again, one of those staples of particularly the early Bond films, where the, the villain is already known before you watch the film almost. Although it's not necessarily the same person or the same setting or the same reason for for the fight, you know, the fact that it's the same organisation behind it kind of, adds a little bit of continuity to the series. But I, I didn't remember until watching that they were introduced this earlier. For some reason, I had in my head that they were introduced later in the series. One other thing as well that I, I didn't really pick up on until re-watching it is James Bond films. When you think about them, the main villain usually has some kind of main bodyguard, don't they, as well? Because some kind of henchman... Whereas in this film, apart from like the guards of the base, Dr. No doesn't have like the main bodyguard in this film, which I was quite surprised because obviously at later films, it's quite, you know, when, the, when they're kind of filming it and uh, recruiting actors, it's, it's quite a, a hot topic. Like, you know, in terms of like, who's the Bond girl? 
who's the main villain I and mean, then also who's kind of like the person before the main villain like the bodyguard as well but in this one obviously there was no henchman no bodyguard in terms of the main one what did you pick that up as well yeah i mean you've, you've basically got dr no and a bunch of unnamed thugs whereas you know in, in more recent bond films you've got villain and odd job or main villain and jaws or you know you've, you've got that barrier so if we if we think of it almost like in computer game terms you've got some bosses before you get to the main boss it's kind of how it feels whereas this was you know there's a there's a bunch of guys that in the way but then the first real villain is dr no himself maybe he was overconfident because he's got metal hands maybe he thought he didn't need someone i mean the, the metal hands are a pretty good weapon i mean this film proves otherwise because they didn't he didn't it wasn't victorious in the end, but in theory, it's a pretty good weapon. I, I guess as we've we've kind of talked through the film almost in chronological order, and we get to the end now, Doctor No is dead, everyone lives happily ever after. I think what was interesting is that the title character is not really in the film all that much. About 20 minutes in total. The film is called Doctor No, but the vast majority of it is not necessarily featuring Doctor No or about Doctor No. Yeah, you introduced to him. He dies within 20 minutes. It's quite refreshing. A lot of films, usually you have, you know, your main villain kind of in and out of, you know, the film throughout. Whereas this, you know, he comes in near the end, he offers him a nice spa, get away, has dinner with him, and then obviously tries to um, implement his his plan in terms of taking the, the space rocket down. And then he has a battle with James Bond and he's dead. And that's it. He's all over for Doctor No. But I thought, yeah, that was, I would say, refreshing. Yeah, I mean, not just James Bond films, but films in general. A lot of them, you establish who the hero and who the villain is quite early doors. And I guess the the only real way you know that Doctor No is the villain is because of mention and because of other things happening around him. But you don't necessarily see him pulling the trigger early doors or set or giving the orders he just is very much a background to the action that's happening and, and only being introduced towards the end of the film is quite a, a novel way of approaching uh, having a villain introduced at all so yeah very very interesting way of doing things yeah maybe it was um, you know because it was the first film maybe it was consciously done you know to make sure people really kind of not indulge but you know in terms of having that kind of relationship to James Bond you know what I mean? He, he's like nearly on screen all the time, isn't he, James Bond? Yeah. Uh, so maybe, you know, after, you know, as a series progress, you can have less James Bond and focus on some of the other characters a bit more. Maybe it was done consciously, I don't know. Yeah, maybe, like you said, more of a way to establish what James Bond is all about so that you almost don't need to explain it in future films because this is James Bond, you know everything you need to know about him. A few other kind of tidbits on the film... Itself. So Honey Rider, sorry, Ursula Andress, the actress who plays Honey Rider, doesn't actually provide her own voice in this film. Her, her speaking parts are dubbed over. And it's the same with Sylvia Trench. There's also two, two of the Bond girls and a few of the, of the minor characters have their voices dubbed. And in the case of Honey and Sylvia and, and one or two others, it's the same voice actor who provides the voice for both Bond girls, which I found quite fascinating. And also, when Honey is singing on the beach, it's a different voice actor who does the singing part. And again, it's not Ursula Andress. Uh, Nicky Van Der Zyl is the main voice actor, but for the singing parts, it's somebody else. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't pick that up at all. So that's that's very interesting, that is. I wonder if it's, I don't know, if it's purely to do with her accent or 
they just the producers just felt they needed someone else to do the the voices for those characters. Yeah, the the accent probably played a part in it. I know it's common practice to hire voice actors for when you're releasing films internationally. So I wonder if this is kind of a a byproduct of that is releasing the film internationally. They needed a better English sounding uh, voice to take yeah, that part. That's a good point. Yeah. Let's get a couple more facts in before we move on to the next section, and that is. Uh, Thunderball was going to be the first film originally. Broccoli and Saltzman, the main producers of the Bond films, wanted Thunderball to be the first film. It ended up being film number four. I don't take a, didn't take a notice for the reason why, but um, I, it may be the order of the books. What it does show is that they already had in mind that they wanted a series of films rather than, as you would find with, with some cases, where you'd have one movie and then make a sequel depending on the success or lack thereof. If they already had in mind they wanted a series, that, that gives you... Kind of their mindset as to how confident they were about the Bond series and franchise being a success. Yeah, especially when you think From Russia With Love came out the following year. So it seems like they made that decision to go ahead with the the second film. I wonder if they started filming it even before this one was released, because in those days, I suppose films turned around a lot quicker than they do nowadays. But obviously, you know, with From Russia With Love coming out the following year, it obviously, they, they, they seem to have made that conscious decision in terms of actually putting some out there. So like you said there, you know, obviously they wanted fundable, but they, they, they might have had those ones already mapped out in terms of which ones they wanted to do for the movie. Yeah, I believe, if memory serves me correctly, that the first four all came out in consecutive years. So there's, And then as the series progressed, I think the gaps became a little bit bigger. So then it became kind of every two years, every three years. Um, but yeah, the first four were were 62 through 65 consecutively. Don't get that nowadays, do you? Not very often, as to be said. I'm trying to think of the last, I guess, you know, you've got the Marvel films, but they're not necessarily all the same characters and same storylines. They're kind of spin-offs of each other. Yeah. Lord of the Rings was released consecutive years at Christmas time each year, but they filmed all three films at the same time. So, you know, they, they didn't you know, film one film, release it, and then film the other. They did everything together. And then between the films being released, they would have done all like your post-production work. Yeah, absolutely. I guess with a series like that, though, you've, you've got a definitive ending. If you if you release the first Lord of the Rings film and leave it there, and, you know, it bombs at the box office, and they think, well, there's no point in having any more. It's a very much an unfinished story when you get to the end of film one. Whereas, you know, in the, in this case... It is the definitive end to a story, so you could think, you know, one and done. You're not missing anything, you're not losing any plot points. So. There's obviously Sean Connery in the role for this and, and a few other Bond films, but the original actor for the role was going to be Cary Grant, but he only committed to one, not the series, so that's why he was ruled out. Doing a bit of research, you know, before we start recording this podcast, there were quite a few actors linked to the James Bond role. And there was various reasons why they didn't end up taking a part. But yeah, Kerry Grant, I think, I can't remember if he was one of the producer's main option, but yeah, like he, he obviously didn't want to commit to a film series franchise. Obviously, you know, in hindsight, I think it works quite well, doesn't it? Having an actor play James Bond for a number of films, whereas obviously, you know, we know and there's been some actors that have only played one or two films where it's nice that you, you get a, an actor playing for a number of films and able to commit. So I think that's really good. Yeah, absolutely. And final point from me on actors is The Professor. 
um, who we spoke about earlier, who was very quickly put to death without any sort of interrogation, played by the actor Anthony Dawson. But it's not the only Bond film to feature him. I didn't know about this until I was researching the podcast, and then that's where I read he featured in another Bond film. Are we going to cover that at another podcast? Yeah, let's let's leave that as a little teaser for future episodes. Okay, so this next section, we're going to just kind of do some one-liners, some quotes that James Bond is that you kind of remember that he's done, and or quotes within the franchise. So the the one between Bond and Money Penny, I can't do any kind of voice acting. So basically, Bond goes, "What gives?" And Money Penny goes, "Me giving an ounce of encouragement." You never take me to dinner looking like this, James. You never take me to dinner, period. Bond goes, I would, but M would have me court-martialed for misuse of government property. And then Moneypenny goes, flattery will get you nowhere, but don't stop trying. And that kind of links in, obviously, to the, the beginning bit, you know, where we talked about James Bond throwing his hat. The little bit of flirting that you mentioned there that's obviously reoccurring in a number of films with Money Penny and James Bond. And was there any other kind of quotes or one-liners that you picked up, Andy? Uh, Felix Leiter and James Bond had a little bit of a exchange when Leiter says, where do you get that suit? Bond replies, my tailor in Savile Row, in Savile Row even. And Leiter replies, mine's from Washington. Felix Leiter, Central Intelligence Agency. Nice little little quip. Shows the um, different styles between um, the Americans and the British secret agencies. Indeed. And then you, you, the exchange between Honey and Bond, as well as the singing to each other and the, the aforementioned uh, knife pulling and the subsequent putting away. Honey says to him quite early doors, uh, what are you doing here, looking for shells? And Bond replies, no, I'm just looking. A little bit flirty. You know, sets the scene for what James Bond is all about. So yeah, so they're the, the kind of three quotes, one-liners, little conversation pieces that we kind of picked out there. So the next couple of points really is looking at the differences between the Doctor No book and the Doctor No movie. So Doctor No is actually the sixth book in the James Bond novel, which I didn't realise that. And also Miss Tarot and Silver Trench do not appear in the book version of Doctor No um, as well. So they were added for the film, which I think... Good characters to add, really. I quite like them both. Obviously, you know, two extra Bond girls. Yeah, it adds a little bit of um, artistic license, doesn't it? And I think they're, you know, they're, they're characters that are not main characters of the film, but add an, have a nice few scenes, add a little bit of additional context. The novels, like you're saying, Doctor No being the sixth Bond novel, I'm not actually familiar with the novels or the order of them. I have read the short stories, which we may or may not discuss in future podcasts um, and i've read one of the more recent ones uh, devil may care but yeah not a not a big bond novel reader but maybe maybe that's something i can add to my wish list for christmas see if the wife takes the hint we might get her on board if she likes a box maybe that's the way in yeah open her heart with a book and then she'll she'll let her guard down when it comes to the film so earlier we mentioned specter first appearance in the series is in this film but actually in the book the induction of book Dr. No works for the Soviet Union. I would guess they probably didn't want to have the Soviet Union in a movie as antagonists for fear of reprisals or, you know, upsetting international relations. But it's quite interesting that the, the book has no such worry and just goes goes with them as the villains of the piece. I know it's an interesting point. I think 
a lot, you know, in terms of the, the 60s and 70s, like in different types of media, especially like in America, the, the bad guys were the Russians, you know, because of the Cold War. Further on, you know, you kind of have the British guys, the baddies in like appearing in American films. Um, and then you got like the Middle East, like the baddies, Korean as well. So yeah, I think it's just at that point in time, I think the, the Russians were the main baddies in a lot of different types of media, really, during that period. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in some ways it's it's a little bit lazy to go down that route because it's just, you know, evil foreigner versus patriotic hero um, is, is a story that's been told many, many times. Uh, but I thought it was interesting. Uh, and final note on the book, James Bond fights a giant squid during an obstacle course that Dr. No has built. I mean, that just sounds bonkers. I'm not sure how that would play out in, in any James Bond film. Yeah, and I don't know if they deliberately left that out just because of the budget. <laughs> Trying to do that in a film is obviously you could easier easily do that in a in a book where it's just words on a page. But trying to film that during the sixties, I, I don't think that that's doable at all, really, or not realistic. To be fair, thinking about you know having watched rewatched the film, it doesn't really fit. I don't think having the obstacle course and a giant squid. What did you think? It just feels out of place, really, thinking about it now. I, I, I can't think of a scenario where that would fit into the narrative of the film. It doesn't suit the Doctor No character. It doesn't match with the struggles that James and Honey went through. So, yeah, it just it feels like one of those things that they did the right call by by cutting that from the film. So, Andy, this, this next bit is something we haven't made any notes on, so it's a bit of a, a surprise for you. So each podcast, what I'm going to do is do a little quiz for you. It's only one question. So basically, I'm going to give you four statements and you're going to tell me which one is correct. So feel free to like dismiss each one or just tell me which one you think is correct. Um, there's no prize, but I will be keeping a running tally. So after we've done all 25 James Bond films, you will get a mark out of 25, but you will not get any trophy or prize i'm afraid it's just a bit of fun so one of these statements is correct the other three is incorrect so first one dr no was a box office failure the second statement this was sean connery's first movie third statement my granddad was in jamaica when this was being filmed Fourth statement. Eunice Gason was originally due to play Miss Moneypenny, but the director switched actresses before filming. Okay, that's interesting. So I, I think I'm going to rule out the first two statements straight away. Okay, I don't so... think Doctor No was a flop. Uh, I don't, I don't know the figures off the top of my head, but it feels like if it was a flop then probably wouldn't have bothered going ahead with the second one, even if it was already in in production at that stage. It certainly wouldn't have continued with the series as it did unless there was a massive increase for, for the second film. Sean Connery's first film? No, that doesn't feel right either. No. I, I think I know where you might have got that statement from or the reason you added that in, and I'm not going to say anything until maybe around episode six. But if I am wrong, then I've just babbled on for 30 seconds and makes no <laughs> sense. Um, so it's either your granddad 
or it's Money Penny. I'm going to go Money Penny. That sounds like. So you're choosing Money Penny over my granddad? Uh, yes, as many, many would, I'm sure. <laughs> Except for my grandma, obviously. Yeah. No, no offense to Jay's grandma. <laughs> that is correct. Yes. Apparently, the director thought that the actress was oozing sexuality. So Eunice Grayson. Um, Gayson, who plays Sylvia Trench, was actually originally cast to um, play Miss Moneypenny. And the actress who plays Miss Moneypenny was originally going to play Sylvia Trench, but the director switched them. So that's an interesting fact. And that's one out of one. So well so done. I've got, I've got a 100% record, a winning streak intact. Hopefully it will continue. So... This next section is where we're going to basically rank the films, theme songs, um, the Bond girls, villains, um, but also we're going to rank James Bond actors and also the films that each actor was in. So obviously we just watched Doctor No. So the villains, movies, Sean Connery, movies, James Bond actors all just have one entry. Same with the theme song and the opening credits. So... You can check out the website and you can see that we've put a nice little table together. So for each of those um, categories, we've just got one in there. So at the moment, after watching Doctor No, there are three Bond girls. So I'm giving them a ranking and so is Andy. So my ranking after Doctor No is number one, Honey Rider. Number two, Sylvia Trench. And number three, Miss Tarot. What were yours, Andy? So I, I understand why you've gone there. You know, obviously, Honey Rider, iconic scene on the beach, main main Bond girl of the of the piece, uh, Ursula, and just obviously very beautiful. I went with Sylvia Trench in first place. There was some something about the way where when she introduced herself and the way she was around him, she seemed much more confident. And in fact, it, it was almost like she was chasing him rather than the other way around, which is is interesting when you think of the Bond dynamic. Yeah, was it the the way that she held the held the golf clubs, where he, she's in his room already, apartment at the beginning? Is that what swayed it for you? It might well have been. That was a that was a pretty good scene. I might want to change my mind about favourite scene. Actually, now you've brought that one back to mind. <laughs> but, but no, that was that's very good scene. But yeah, so I, I went with Silver in first place, followed by Honey, followed by Miss Tara. Miss Tara, not really featured heavily, not an afterthought as such, but you know, not really enough of an impact to. To warrant a higher ranking, I would say. Yeah, interesting, because obviously she wasn't in the book. They've added her to the film. And I suppose in terms of helping move the story along, you've got, you know, the scene where she's listening at the door when Bond is, you know, talking to the um, the agency guy. And obviously, you know, the um, the journey to a house as well. So you've got those extra scenes. Maybe that's why they put her in, you know, just in terms of helping moving the story forward. That's why they, they might have put her in. But yeah, I was really surprised when I saw that you put Sylvia in number one. I think that will cause some debate. Be interesting to see, obviously. So what we're going to do when, when we watch From Russia We Love, the Bond girls in From Russia We Love, we will put in to those tables and we will build it up by each film. So at the moment, we've got number one, two, and number three for Bond girls. And what we're going to do on our website is have uh, my list and then we're going to have Andy's list as well. So we're going to keep... Um, a nice track and record in terms of where everyone is. So just for clarity, in terms of theme song, 
number one rank is the James Bond theme by John Barry, which is a Doctor No movie. The opening credits as well, we're going to rank those. At the moment, we just watched a one film. So it's this one where the flashing lights that we mentioned earlier, lots of circles and squares, silhouettes of women, and then the transition to the three blind mice to the old men walking. So that's in number one. The villains, obviously, because like we said earlier, there's only one villain in this as well. So Dr. No is number one. We're going to rank the movies as well. So obviously we watched number one, um, Dr. No, which is the first one. So that's just gone straight in at number one. And that's the same with Sean Connery movies as well. And then, like I said earlier, we're also going to rank the James Bond actors, but we're only going to include um, the actors, obviously, once we watch them in order. So George Lazenby will come in next. But at the moment, that table will just say Sean Connery for the next few movies. So, yeah, I think um, that's everything at the moment, isn't it, Andy? It is. I think that was a, a good first film to start and it brought back a lot of memories. You know, such an iconic franchise and getting the chance to revisit and kind of talk about things that we maybe didn't notice first time round or second time round and kind of see things through a new lens all these years later. I certainly, I think it's going to be an interesting few months ahead as we go on this Bond journey together. Well, that's this week's episode done. We hope you enjoyed it. Special thanks to the band Sugar Tongue for the theme tune to The Rating Room. You can find them on all the usual social media channels. And be sure to check out their song The System, available now on Spotify. You can find and message us on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok and Instagram by searching The Rating Room. You'll find all our social media links on our website, theratingroom.com, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Or feel free to drop us an email at theratingroom at gmail.com. Goodbye, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week, right here on The Rating Room. My name is Abby, and I am the host of the Sweet Baby Gay Podcast. We are a podcast to learn about the community straight from queer people. I do this by bringing on guests straight from my audience to teach us about their life and their experiences. That way we are getting the most authentic stories and showing that there are so many different sides to being queer and that there is a place for everybody. So whether you're a baby gay trying to learn or a veteran gay trying to share their experience, come join us at Sweet Baby Gay Pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Sweet Baby Gay and you can find us on Instagram at Sweet Baby Gay Pod. Again, that's wherever you get your podcasts, Sweet Baby Gay, or on Instagram at Sweet Baby Gay Pod. Thank you guys!